we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Woi Wurrung and Yuan Nations, traditional custodians of the lands of which we record this podcast. We recognise the care and cultivation of country by First Peoples and pay respect to Elders past and present. That respect is extended to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Diggers Podcast, the podcast for subversive gardeners looking to explore the unconventional and potentially controversial concepts that push the boundaries of traditional gardening. Join us as we challenge the status quo and discover new ways to grow and cultivate the world around us. Welcome to the Diggers podcast series, where we discuss the hot horticultural topic, eucalypts, friend and foe. The iconic tree has been a topic of conversation and debate for many years, and over the course of this series, we'll be talking to people from all sides of the argument and exploring more widely trees in our urban and wild areas. Hello to you. My name is Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, teacher and broadcaster from Melbourne, Australia, hosting on behalf of the Diggers Club and Foundation. Diggers is a gardening club and community specialising in conservation and preservation of a wide range of heirloom vegetables and rare fruits and plants. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Bruce Pascoe, writer and farmer. Bruce has published over 30 books, including the well-known Dark Emu, where he challenged claims that First Nations people were not hunter-gatherers, as early settler accounts depicted, but demonstrated evidence of land management, aquaculture, engineering, and permanent housing. Bruce, welcome to the Diggers podcast. Uh, thanks, Chloe. It's lovely to be here. Hey, good. I'm... Um, I'm very excited to chat to you today. It's um, it's a little bit of a dream, so I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, now you are coming to us from your country in Malakuta today. Tell me about your garden or your land that you live on. Uh, I live on 140 acres of land beside the Wallagra River. It wasn't my first preference when I, I wanted to buy a farm so that I could grow Australian foods, but it turned out to be a very good choice, uh, despite the fact that it was the cheapest land around at the time, because it's, it has rising country, it has flat, has freshwater, saltwater, it has some old uh, growth trees on it, and a lot of the rubbish that has grown up since logging. So have you got much of a cultivated garden around the house? I've got two. The first thing I did when I bought the farm was to build two enclosed gardens behind the house. They're large and I incorporated the existing fruit trees so that I'm picking apples now, I'll be picking peaches next week. And uh, But as well as that, in that garden I grow myrnong which is the yam daisy, Microcerus mm. lanceolata, or what it's now called, Walteri, and the uh, lilies, Arthropodium, uh, chocolate lily, and um, a vanilla lily. They're incredibly mm. successful. We had to 
and close them because everything wants to eat them. We've got lyrebirds, wombats, <laughs> bowerbirds, currawongs, goannas, bandicoots, uh, dunarts, and they all want to eat. And they all go after. Yeah, they a uh, little dunart, little. Uh, <laughs> It's only a very tiny beast but very aggressive. Um, its metabolism must be very fast because it wants to do everything now. Uh, lovely little creature but, you know, can <laughs> cause you a, a few tricks. We had to particularly keep the bowerbirds out because they're such a hungry bird. In, in fact, in desperate times, my neighbours used to eat bowerbirds because they're a fruit eater and uh, they taste absolutely delicious as does the wonga pigeon. Oh, really? I'm not supposed to know how right. either tastes, but I can guarantee that in a hard situation, <laughs> bowbird. Well, I'll keep it in the back of my mind if um, <laughs> if the situation ever confronts me. <laughs> what part of the murnong do the animals go after? Do they go after the fleshy root underneath or do they just mow down the top? Uh, they will, they'll eat the leaves um, and the flowers. Uh, but mm. they like the roots, uh, like everything else does as well, um, including um, skinks. So mm. they'll dig to get at mm. the root. Occasionally we find that something has eaten uh, part of a root, but they're so prolific that we still get a crop. We don't mind mm. sharing as long as it's not with a wombat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I usually have uh, cockies that go after the tops of the apples on my apple trees and I don't mind sharing so long as I get a few as well of the ones down the bottom. Hey, tell me about the old growth trees on your property. Well, during the fires in 2019 and 20, I was fighting a fire on the ridgeline I'm looking at at the moment and uh, I, I could hear the fire coming. It's a noise you don't want to hear again. Yeah. So I grabbed my backpack spray and I was um, getting out of there. But I was in a group of old trees and they were very, very big, ironbarks, angophora, stringybarks, very big old trees. And because they're so crooked, no one had ever bothered to cut them down for timber. And perhaps they're crooked mm. because they're on the top of a ridge and they cop a bit of fair blast. But I looked around and I thought, mm. I reckon I'm going to see you trees tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. I got out of there. It actually took a day and a half for it to be safe enough to get back up there. But everything else was gone, all badly burnt. But those trees hadn't been burnt because their first branch is too far off the ground. No ladder fuels can get up to them. And it, okay. it was an excellent example of what we need to do with our forest. We need to revert to the old Aboriginal forest. The fire didn't reach the canopy. Um, it didn't reach the canopy because the canopy is too far off the ground. And what got into the canopy in the rest of the forest I'm looking at now is because all those trees are too close together. They are torching each other. Whereas mm. a tree that is isolated from its neighbour, in, in that case by 80 metres or so, their crowns mm. don't touch. They're designed so their crowns don't touch. So underneath those trees and in the forest in general, as soon as the fire passed, we got good rain. We had grasses growing in those spaces that we'd never seen before. I had a, a crop of wallaby right. grass. I didn't even know the name of the plant. Um, I was able to identify it thanks to those wonderful apps. But that proved yeah. to us that the absence of 
grasses in the forest and the massive amount of undergrowth was uh, simply because of light source. In the old forest, there's enough light filtering through the canopy. It sounds counterintuitive, but this is what happens. But in dense post-logging canopy, it's too tight. There are too many trees. They all touch each other. Mm. They block out the sun. No grasses grow beneath them. But when you've got a really big forest, the wattles, hopgodenia, all of those scrubby species which actually cause our fire, they're Mm. much reduced by about 80%, I'd say. And that makes for a much safer forest. I do talk about it a lot, but I think I need to talk about it a lot because I think Australia needs to learn this lesson about how to live on this continent. Absolutely. Eucalypts, I mean, let's put it out here, I'm a huge fan of them. They cop a really bad rap for being branch droppers, house destroyers, land destroyers. They have a really bad reputation. You just said that it's the goodenias and the wattles that are the fuel for the fire. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Well, when you get a a bad fire, like a wildfire, the recovery species are Mm. black wattle, sometimes uh, hickory wattle, and um, the hopgodenia in this country. Yes. You know, you go two and a half kilometres, it changes. But in this country, it's hopgodenia. And this is a plant with a, a high oil base. If you drive through this bush here on a hot day like today, what you'll smell is the oil from hopgodenia. It smells like coffee. It's a really beautiful smell in the bush. But when I smell it, uh, now the hairs stand up in the back of my neck. Yeah, I, I can imagine there'd be a little bit of worry that comes with that scent from the bush. Let's talk about First Nations land management strategies. You just mentioned it before. We manage the land very differently to how it has been traditionally managed for the last 60, 80,000 years. How did they manage the land? Well, three months after the fire went through, If the old Aboriginal people had been on the ground, we would have been burning that country. I'm talking about the hillside I'm looking at. We Mm. would have been in there and burning because the regrowth was immediate. Within days of rain, tree ferns were putting out tendrils. There were orchids growing. We had wattles starting to come up and they looked pretty sweet. But now those wattles are so thick that a wallaby can't run through them. If you get a wallaby or lyrebird, on the track now, it has to run 100 metres to find an avenue to get off the road. That's how thick the understory is. Now, that's in the National Park. Mm. Um, On my land, it's not like that because we burn. Uh, We try and do the old burning regime and the farm is a lot safer than the forest. What is the burning regime that you use up there? What's the frequency and severity of it? We think we should burn every two years. We think that's the ideal turnaround time. There's a mathematical formula for when we burn, which was provided by an old Aboriginal man, and that Aboriginal man gave that formula to the people who had massacred his family. The reason he gave it to him was he cared so much for the country and how it should be looked after that he gave that formula to the people who had killed his family, and no greater love hath man. Yeah, wow. When you are burning, what's the height of the flames that you're burning with? The height of the flame is mid-shin. If it gets above that, I start to growl the fellas because that's a fire that we have lost control of or potentially we will lose control of. Mm. It might flare up in bracken to get to your knee, uh, but we try not to let that happen. Mm. And we follow the fire. 
you know, some of the fellas used to do it in shorts and thongs. I've insisted they now wear boots, but uh, really the rule is if you can't walk through that fire, and this is what I taught my son when he was nine, if you can't walk through the fire, it's too hot. Mm. So you should be able to light a line of fire, not a long one, you know, 100 metres maximum. You've got that line of fire. You should be able to step through it because it'll be mid-shin and you'll be able to scrub it out with your boot if you have to. You know, we always have fire tankers and uh, I've got two fire tankers on the property now. Mm. They're always in situ. We prepare our site well, so we run a line of water around the section that we want to burn. This is not for our sake. This is for the sake of our neighbours, for their peace of mind, because they're still not convinced we can do this. But when we burn, last year, for instance, we had a really good burn at Yambala, a high-profile bunch of botanists and fire ecologists and farmers, and, you know, they were heavy hitters in this area. And they said to me, I bet you can't light a fire now. I was waiting for them to do that. So I had a couple of the Ewan men with me and we lit that fire and we just walked around it. Some of them had a cup of tea. Um, it was like a leisurely picnic. Um, and we probably burnt, would have been an, an acre, I suppose. We lit up around half past two, which is part of that formula I spoke to you about before. Because the benefit of that is that by 4.30, the cooler, moister air comes in and the fire will probably go out of its own accord at that time. So you've only got a window of two hours. This is why the CFA and DELP don't like it, Mm. because it's so labour intensive and you only burn one acre, two acre, ten acres a day. Um, And that's because you want it to be safe. Anyway, when that fire had passed, you know, people were saying, oh, you've killed all the grass, you've killed all the orchids now. And I just swept my hand across the top of that grass and all the green shoots were still intact below. The kangaroo grass, the spear grass, Michaelinus diploides, the orchids, they were all there. We hadn't killed anything. We'd burnt the trash, the dead leaves and the thatch that formed on that place Next morning, as part of this conference, we were in a room having tea and cake and things, looking down over the plain, and you could actually see the the square we'd burnt. I think there were 40 kangaroos feeding at the edges of that square, and as we talked, they fed all over it because we had uncovered uh, the green grass, and it was the best example to those people. They still talk about it today as the best example of safe burning. It's not genius on our part. It's genius on the part of our uh, forebears. That's really fascinating. It's reminding me of an area of land, and I don't know exactly where, but I've uh, seen an interview with Victor Stephenson talking about the types of burning strategies in a particular part of land just outside of Tarthra, a little bit further from you in New South Wales this patch of land they've been working with the local First Nations people implementing these cool burning strategies? Yeah, Victor's a Queenslander, so we don't always agree, but I think he does a fabulous job. He's certainly brought the idea of cultural burning into the public discussion. My old teacher, Uncle Max Harrison, uh, he was always saying it's not about a method that you bring from the north of the country down to here. It's about what this country needs. One size doesn't fit all. You have to look at the country. You have to know your country. 
Mm. And those uh, First Nations people look at country, assess the country, and work out what it needs today. Not a hard formula that is applied in general. It's about what that country needs today. I think that's what has certainly been missed by white people and government organisations when it comes to burn-offs, for lack of a better term, is this just blanket formula for every part of Victoria. We're talking a lot about East Gippsland in very far eastern Victoria. The needs of the country there is going to be completely different to Little Desert National Park over in far western Victoria. They're completely different ecosystems. Yeah, and they light both fires within centuries. They drop them from aircraft. Why do they do that? Is that the best method? No, it's the cheapest. Yeah. And because parks and DELP are so impoverished, they're forced into a situation where humans are too expensive. They have to use aircraft. It's ridiculous when an aircraft is cheaper than people, but we need more and more people We need more and more Aboriginal people involved in those burns. They need to be trained from when they're 9 and 10 and 11 to do that. And we need feet on the ground because we need to burn from 2 o'clock in the afternoon and making sure the fire's out by 5 o'clock because you don't want it burning overnight. But if you burn at the right time, it won't burn overnight. But it means that you're only going to be doing up to 5, 10 acres a day maximum and that'll be costing you about 8 or 9 people. Parks don't want to spend that money. They want to do 3,000 hectares in one burn. Mm. So in order to get their bang for their buck, they drop incendiaries like like it was Dresden. Yes. And from my understanding, the way that the forestry sector does it is a more typical hot burn, whereas traditional management has been with these cooler, smaller burns. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Our forestry are in the same position. They're trying to make a profit. So once again, many times it's lit by incendiary and it creates a holocaust. It does the job they want to do. But we need to look very carefully at forestry in this country and particularly in this state and New South Wales because when they were growing blue gum a few years ago, they were finding the first year they grew blue gum, the result was incredible. The growth was incredible. And that's because the plant was using the utility of the carbon that had been put in the soil after the burning. Mm. And the first growth was incredible. What they often found, and this is true of Tasmania as well, they didn't get a second crop. The soil had been so depleted by the burn and by the vigour of that blue gum that they couldn't get a decent second crop. And each crop after that became successively worse because there was no fertility left in the soil. It's too exposed. And in some cases, there was no soil. The soil had gone. After those big heavy machines with tyres on them as tall as this ceiling had churned through that ground, they created the ripest conditions for erosion. And we complained about a forestry coup here that had been destroyed like that. You know, you could bury a buffalo in the wheel tracks, if you ever want to bury a buffalo, I, I think you should do it in the forestry coop. That country lost all its topsoil. Mm. We complained, of course, with photographs, etc., etc. We had no impact on this. It's a National Party electorate. But the farmer downstream complained because all that gravel was on his grass. Mm. And that was when there was some action taken. Um, but what was the action? To stop the forestry operation? No. 
to put baffles in the river to stop the sand coming downstream. You know, an eight-year-old child would tell you, uh, what about stopping the forestry operation? Isn't that the cause? Mm-hmm. You know, eight-year-old kids are a lot smarter than 55-year-old politicians. Yeah, they are. And it just seems to be band-aid for bullet hole measures that get implemented without actually fixing the root cause of the problem, which is the regime that we've been doing it for 50, 100 years. Do you know? Yeah, I'd say started from what I understand for this country would be about 1980. Prior to that, I was witnessing my neighbours who were sawmillers taking individual trees out of the forest and they can make a living milling those individual trees and apart from the stump, you could barely see where they'd been in the forest. They had a little German machine that crawled through the bush, hardly left a mark on the forest floor as they dragged those logs out of the bush. They cut the upper limbs off so they weren't debarking other trees in the forest. And it was a beautiful operation to witness because there was a whole family of nine of them making an income out of the forest without destroying the forest. Mm. Part of our problem in Australia is we don't like Australia. We don't love our bush. We blame the bush because she's not Devon. Mm. Australia is to blame. We have to change Australia. Uh, She must behave like this. Mm. You know, we want her to look like the south of France. If you want the south of France, go to the south of France and um, preferably stay there. (laughs) But leave Australia to be Australia. She is herself. She is a mature woman and she should be allowed to be herself. And we hate her for not being what we want. Yeah, absolutely. Let's sort of move on to how land and trees have been managed a little bit more widely by First Nations people. What are the differences to how we manage bushland areas today? You know, my family are timber cutters from way back. So there's a long history of forest involvement in my family. But Aboriginal people were really economical. And one of the reasons why we were so conscious of forest protection was we believe that Mother Earth is our mother. That is the centre of our law, Mother Earth. You know, when you and we end every sentence with through the mother, if we've finished speaking, we say, because that is recognising the fact that every person has come through their mother. And that is reminding us that our primary responsibility is to the earth, not ourselves. We come from the mother. Uh, We are responsible to her, not her responsible for us. And that's where the love comes from. You know, and I know that that'll make the toes curl of people who hate sentiment, but Aboriginal people loved sentiment. And so we said, Nachatangnora, through the mother. She is our primary love. She is our first love. And we have to look after her as we would our own mother. And it's such a caution. I was introduced to the law by that old man, Uncle Max. And I learnt how uncaring I was of country and people. You know, I thought I was a good bloke. I thought I was looking after people. I thought I was looking after the bush. I'd lived in it all my life. I loved the bush, you know. I thought I was caring. But Uncle, one memorable day, said, I want you to get a branch of a tree because we're going to do the ceremony. We have to sweep the ground. So you need a branch that will allow you to sweep the ground. And we all went and got a branch. And when I came back, He said, did you thank the tree? Which branch did you take? Did you harm the tree? And I just stopped in my tracks. Mm. It had never occurred to me to ask the tree. It had never occurred to me to select the branch 
that suited the tree best, not me best. You know, it's, it's so logical. You learn to care for the tree. If I take this branch off now, is it going to impede the growth of that tree? Will I expose too much sapwood? What about if I cut it a bit further away from the trunk? Mm-hmm. All of those things you learn. And it was such a profound lesson about care. And when we take a tree, it's taken with the same uh, care. We make a lot of kulamons now. And the art of making the kulamon is not to get the kulamon, but to make sure the tree doesn't die. If the tree dies, you're in trouble. Mm. So you have to be really discreet. You have to look at the health of that tree. Is she going to be able to survive this incision, this surgery? And once you begin to look at the trees like that, you'll identify the tree straight away, not just for the quality of its bark, because uh, some barks are better to use than others, but also that particular tree is going to survive that. And the old people's ability to identify the correct tree is evidenced by the fact those scar trees are still there today and growing. One of the biggest trees on my property has two massive scars. What is that bark or that scar being collected for? Babies, baby cradle. Oh, wow. Uh, the one on the tree down here is the ideal length and width to carry a baby. If you're picking tubers and you've got a tiny baby and you don't want it rolling around in the soil, you put it in a kulamon. So if the baby moves, the cradle rocks. And there's a comfort in that for the child, but also it's not rolling around on the ground. Mm. Um, Woman's Aboriginal cloak had a little sleeve in it, which was used to carry children so that a woman could work in, uh, in the gardens or the fields and still have a baby on her back. And the baby got used to that action of the mother bending over and standing up, carrying and carting. If you ever see one of those in the museum with that sleeve in it, have a close look at it. Mm. It's ingenious because that, if, you're, if you've ever carried a child for a long distance, you'll see how clever it was because it allows the comfort of the child and the mother. I will definitely be having a closer look next time I see them. Uh, What you were saying before about Uncle Max asking you if you'd considered the tree when you removed that branch from it, I teach pruning to horticulture students every week and I'm absolutely going to start incorporating that thought into classes because it would make people look at the plant in an entirely different way when it comes to pruning or when it comes to any type of care for the plant. Yeah, walk, walk up to the plant. I prune fruit trees every year. Uh, walk up to the plant, yeah. grab a hold of her, which will cause you to look at her and look for her health. What kind of conditions she in? What does she need? Is she going to? Uh, is this prune going to hurt her or benefit her? The students need to know that. Hmm. If I do this, cut this limb, is it going to benefit the plant or not? Is she going to survive? And, you know, fruit trees have evolved to handle pruning, just as our munyang, the lilies, have evolved to enjoy the tilling of humans. We can virtually pull these plants out of the ground, harvest 20 tubers, stick them back in the ground, cover them with soil, and next day you will be hard pushed to remember which plant you dug out of the ground. Mm. They're that adapted to human interaction that they could withstand that rough treatment of humans ripping tubers off, not that we rip them off, you know, you've got to be careful of the plant, but 
we might take 20 tubers off a plant, stick it back in the soil, cover it up, tamp it down, and next day you can't tell that plant from any other one in the patch. Could you tell me a little bit more about this sort of, it's not really on the trees topic, but I'm intrigued about the cultivation of other types of Australian plants for food purposes. How was it done and what did they use? There was a digging stick that the women used to aerate the soil, you know, dig out their tubers, lift the plants, uh, belt their husbands when that, when that was required, <laughs> which was daily. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but also people were pulling out eucalypt saplings and wattle saplings in particular so that the plants weren't getting shaded or outcompeted. So there was weeding going on as well. There's really good evidence for that in the colonial literature. You know, my critics say that uh, evidence doesn't exist. Yes, it does. Read Dark Emu, go to the back of the book, Mm. go to the effort of going through the bibliography. You'll find those references. Go to the library and read them. They're there. But if you want a conspiracy theory, then just say that, you know, I made it up. Mm. But if you read the bibliography, which a student ought to do anyway, a good reader should do that anyway. In the kids' version, there's a bibliography as well so that um, kids can check on you, uh, check on the facts. And I like to think of that really smart girl in year seven, and she says, that's really interesting. Where's that book? And she goes to a school library, and hopefully the book is there, and she can check page for page. As an ex-school teacher, I love the thought of that child. And I love the thought of the black girl in Albany, Western Australia. When she's doing a school assignment, she goes to her library and she finds a book on Aboriginal history because I've been to many schools in Western Australia and in many of those schools in the history section, there was no book on Aboriginal history. I was gutted to realise that. Mm. I did that tour about five years ago. I was gutted. And what I thought about was the 12-year-old girl. Mm. If she wanted to defend her culture and say something to her teacher about her culture, she would have no support whatsoever. So that teacher would not get the benefit of that child's wisdom and knowledge of her culture. And it's the same with caring for plants. The tillage of Aboriginal soils in Victoria, around Melbourne, for instance, the Murnong fields were tilled so heavily that terraces had been created uh, along the hillsides on the contours. Mm. Um, it aided the um, retention of uh, water in the soil. Um, it also helped the harvester uh, to harvest the vegetables. And yet only two or three people mentioned them. Uh, the rest of them were there to destroy them and to destroy the people who had created them. A thinking person would have said, and that would exclude nearly all colonists, a thinking person would look at that and say, maybe this kind of growing is perfect fit for this continent, this strange continent where we've got kangaroos and echidnas and these strange beasts. The soil is strange too. It is strange to us. Why would we treat this soil as if it was Kent? I do get really frustrated at the European early settlers and their ignorance of or lack of willingness to embrace the new land that they'd come to. 
I mean, it's a different time, different generation, but you might think that if you go to a new place, you might be really curious and interested to see how people live, but the ignorance is is just so unfortunate and it's created so much hurt for the last 200 years and there's a whole lot of intergenerational trauma that has occurred because of the ignorance of the first people that are, white people that arrived here. It really, really frustrates me and it's an awful feeling and it must be even worse for the people that were here before whites came. Well, I often think of the people who had had the responsibility for Mother Earth passed over to them and they lost control of it overnight. Mm. In some cases, they lost control of their land that had they had promised they would look after, they lost control of it overnight. And people wonder why Aboriginal people sometimes engage in self-harm. I think the trauma of that, which is more than a, a battle in a world war, this is something outside the imagination of anyone, losing control of the land that your people had been managing for 100,000 years. People like to argue with me about that age too. So let's say 65,000 years to keep you happy. Um, But we know that if it's not next year, it'll be the year after that. We'll be talking about 120,000 years as if it's written stone. The reluctance of Australia to credit Aboriginal people with having been here a long time is only matched by the reluctance of Australians to admit that Aboriginal people had any competence in growing food. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously why I bought the farm. I didn't buy the farm because I needed to be driving tractors at the age of 75. (laughs) I needed to buy the farm so I could grow the food, so I could prove to people that we can make flour from this grass, we can harvest these tubers into perpetuity um, without uh, ploughing the soil at all. We're tilling it. We're not ploughing it. We're not releasing carbon. We're building carbon. We're building soil quality. The mycorrhizal fungi are not being killed by superphosphate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are truisms. Mm. Uh, go and do a bit of research. You'll find that this is the case. These are things that we developed over a long period of time because we observed the country, but primarily we said to ourselves and our children, we owe everything to Mother Earth. I think the world is turning to that conclusion now that, you know, my brother Kuma, um, Richard Swain, he says um, this is the decade uh, for action or saying goodbye. Mm. It's a terrible thought that in 10 years, and you know how quickly 10 Christmases go by, a terrible thought to think that in 10 years we are waving goodbye to our planet. I don't know about that time scale. I do know about the urgency, and I do know uh, that humans aren't stupid. I know that the eight-year-old kids aren't stupid. We can stupefy ourselves Mm. if all we want to do is win the next election, which is three years away. We can stupefy ourselves if we are taking money from coal miners or agricultural chemical supply companies. We can believe the unbelievable. But if we really, truly loved our home, if we truly loved Australia or we truly loved America or whoever is there, whatever country your feet are on, mm. if you truly love that country, you won't go shooting school children. You'll be growing vegetables mm. and caring for the soil. Yeah, and I'm really optimistic about how the earth will be managed in future generations with just what I see being taught in well, mainly Australian schools today 
Dark Emu is incorporated into the curriculum in some schools now. It's fantastic primary and high school. Uh, but I'm in general, I'm optimistic about the generation coming through of having that more respect for our land and being open to better ways to manage it. In your opinion, from now on, what do we need to do to get the land back into a healthier state? We do need to act slowly. I know a lot of people are worried about that, but we still need to produce food. Mm. So we don't want to do a change so rapidly that we force people to starve. You would think that would be logical, but in fact, it's what Stalin did and it's what Mao Zedong did. You can't sacrifice people for an idea, but you can increase the willingness of those people to believe in the idea. And we do need to act quickly. There are many things we could do overnight. We could convert, let's say, 10% of our grain lands to perennial grasses instead of annuals, instead of wheat and oats. The yield per acre of a perennial grass like kangaroo grass or beer grass, we've had a fantastic season with spear grass. The yield per acre is maybe 20% of a wheat crop, but the nutrition in a kangaroo grass seed compared to a seed of wheat is the seed of wheat has 11% protein. The seed of kangaroo grass has protein of 27%. Mm, wow. So you don't need to harvest as much of it to get the same protein. You don't need to apply any water. What's Australia? A dry continent, second mm. driest on earth. Mm. So surely that's a benefit. Politicians, th- this is a benefit. Country party, farmers organisations, this is a benefit. It's not a threat. These grasses don't need water. If you use superphosphate on them, one of the other farmers' greatest expenses, it will kill the plant. If you use herbicide on it, for instance, you're going to damage the plant as well. But also, this is an Australian plant. It has been living with all the Australian insects for a million years. This plant has adapted itself to live in company with its other family and its other family of the insects, the bandicoots, the mycorrhizal fungi. There's an adaptation there which is very important. And then if you're not going to plough every year, then you're not using as much diesel. You're not using your tractor as much. If you are using a tractor, you're using a lighter one, so you're not compacting the soil. All of these things are an arithmetical formula for the farmer to make money, not immediately. You know, this, you know, any farmer who went and planted kangaroo grass all over their land now would be doing themselves a disservice. Do a third of your farm now. Learn about it because mm. you have to learn this plant. You have to know this plant. You have to learn the techniques. And while you're doing that, you can still have your oats and your wheat. Ten years down the track, turn over half your farm to these. Um, And if you're on the marginal farms, I would encourage people to go straight to kangaroo grass because you'll save your soil. Mm. The erosion that happens every summer in the district of western New South Wales, for instance, that causes a hullabaloo on the news, you know, these dust clouds taking our soil to New Zealand. We should stop giving things to New Zealand, particularly soil. We should be recycling their prime ministers over here, perhaps. We don't need to (laughs) give New Zealand anything. Um, We need to just plant perennials. Stop making dust. Stop ploughing on those marginal countries and build soil. Mm. When I bought this farm, rocks were standing out of the soil. I got rid of the cattle, allowed the grass to grow, and now 
we're in the process four years later of building soil. You know, our topsoil now has doubled in depth uh, just because that we allow the thatch to remain. Our method will change, you know, as we develop. But in order for soil recovery to begin, you need that thatch. Mm. And we need to stop kidding ourselves. Well, kidding's a good word because Stan Kidman was lauded as this genius for roaming cattle all over the country. And we called him a genius because he was able to so-called drought-proof. All he was doing was using Aboriginal capital. He was going from one farm to the next farm to the next station, progressively shifting his cattle around and progressively uh, using up the capital in the soil. If we're real investors in Australia, uh, we need to invest in our soil first and not use it up. 230 years later, we've nearly used the entire black capital in our soil. As a good example, sorry to go on, but I find it fascinating. Keep going. Um, in the Alps, up near uh, Jindabyne, one of the younger Aboriginal men was instructed by an older Aboriginal man in a story uh, about the soil. And he matched that with um, a document by the first white person to ride through that country. And that person said uh, there was uh, nearly... Uh, nearly a metre of deep chocolate soil, about two-thirds, three-quarters of a metre of deep chocolate soil. Within 15 years, on that slope where that man had stood, there was no soil because the tilth of that soil was so light that as soon as you introduced hard-hoofed animals, the soil slipped down the hillside into the snowy river and blocked up the entrance at Marlow. Boats that had been coming upstream to pick up cream and milk mm. in those first years of the colony, and I know this for a fact at Tambo, those ships that were deep-drafted enough to pick up dairy products in bulk, they could no longer navigate the Tambo because it was full of sand. It still is full of sand. You drive over the bridge when you go over it, travelling up through the country there, and there's a little bit of river running through, but there's sandbars all through it. And the local pub has photographs of these deep-drafted boats. Oh, this river God, down really? here, the Wallagara. Um, I, I was reading a document the other day and there was a 15-tonne vessel virtually sailed up to the fresh water where the falls are. And now and my kids get bogged on a surf ski. And that's forestry. It's not farming here. That's forestry. Yeah. I remember after the black summer bushfires, we were kayaking along the Toowoomba River in Kaya. And the amount of erosion, soil and other types of sand that had been washed down the river because everything had been burnt and there was no plants and roots holding the soil together anymore. There's so much muck in the river. And they had new sandbars that, that we had to navigate through because of everything that had been washed down. It was significant. It's a magnificent river still. I mean, it's lower reaches, but... Oh, yeah, it was stunning. She's been so badly abused, that poor old river. Yeah. Really ignorant, I hate to say it about my fellow Australians, but really ignorant farming and absolutely brutal forestry. Australian people need to take responsibility for their country. We need to object to such brutal schemes, which are so short-term. And now because they're ingrained, even though we expect that they're not very good, uh, we keep on doing them because our grandfather did them. Yeah. And you just mentioned there two things that I've picked up. So when you were talking earlier about First Nations respect for the country, you're talking about 
it being mother and that maternal instinct is a lot more gentle than a paternal or traditional patriarchal instinct and Western culture is a patriarchal society. Coming to Australia, there would have been that clash with a culture that's maybe perhaps a little bit more female respecting and worshipping. That brusqueness that the forestry and farming has is, again, that sort of And this is generalisation here, but it's that patriarchal ingrained into us that thinks, oh, I know better, don't need to ask anyone else for help, I've got this, and it's just ignorant. It's incomplete. Yeah. The, um, you know, Aboriginal society was not inhabited by angels. You know, we're not a perfect human. Perhaps no such thing exists, but we can be more caring. Mm. And to care, you need the man and the woman. And I recommend to people to climb Mount Gulliga and go through the circle of stones. Two-thirds of the way up, there's a girdle of stones. It's the central part of Yuan law, and it's all about women. Poor old Tonku, the first man, um, he, he gets very bad press in Yuan law. Uh, he's hardly mentioned at all, mm. whereas the, everything you, you see, everything you learn, you know, when a good elder takes you through that country is that woman is everything. And uh, the care of woman is everything. And it might sound um, like I'm being a bit modern, or what do they say now, woke? But that's not true. It's it's what the law is. And the law is care for mother. You know, I used to get crayfish for Uncle Banjo in uh, Western Victoria, and I was very proud to be able to get that old man crayfish because he could no longer get crayfish for himself. And one day I, I took him a crayfish, and he turned the crayfish up to me upside down and said, Look, she was full of eggs, and he said, I can't eat this crayfish. Massive lesson for me because I was full of the male pride, Mm. uh, bringing the food to my uncle, and he just turned it up to me and said, look, it was the perfect thing about sustainability. Do not take this fish. Take the stupid male. (laughs) It's what we will Um, do here. Well, thank you for acknowledging it. Yeah. (laughs) In a fortnight's time, we will shoot a, a young male kangaroo, but if we shoot a deer, we will shoot a female for the reason being that that female has the potential to have 17 young deer, whereas if we shoot a male, we won't dent the population at all because another male will come in place who's probably been looking for his opportunity for two years and um, he'll take over seamlessly. You know what shooters want to do? This is why you don't want shooters in charge of any kind of animal control. They will always shoot the male. Yes. Because then they can get the antlers oh. and they can stick it on the wall above their bar and um, go, look at me. I'm just like that big deer. I'm real horny. Yep, overcompensating for something else, but that's probably another conversation. Um, it's so refreshing to hear about, I mean, there are other societies around the world that are more matriarchal than the patriarchal Western society. And so it is, it's very interesting to hear you talk about First Nations culture like that. Um, Look, it's, it's neither. It's not good fellow versus black fellow. It's not man versus woman. No, of uh, course not. This is a this is about the species surviving and being cared for. You know, I'm not trying to grandstand and be um, modern and you know grab a headline. I'm sick of headlines. I'm absolutely sick of headlines. Yeah, I can imagine. What I want is action on behalf of the earth. And you know, if that ancient civilization, which is Yuan can have such a profound statement of its belief on Gulliga Mountain near uh, Tilba Tilba, 
then think about it. Don't rebel against it. Think about it. Why did those people do that? They weren't practicing voodoo. I shouldn't have used the word voodoo because voodoo probably has an intelligence. It wasn't, you know, some kind of mystical, magical thing. It was about common sense mm. and decency. We were talking about it at the weekend, about you and law, because you and men are about to go on camp to do you and law. There'll be 50 of us. And the thing we say about our law is there's no mystery to it. What it's about is human decency. You know, don't come and do law as an Aboriginal person if you want to become this mystical object that sounds really deadly in the pub. Come and do you and law because it's about decency. It's about looking after women, looking after children, looking after yourself, Mm. looking after your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. It's about human decency. It's as simple as that. And it mightn't be sexy enough for some people, but that's what it is, human decency. Mm. I have a sort of final question for you, Bruce. How do you see us progressing into a way that we recognise traditional practices and traditional knowledge and incorporating them into how we live better in Australia into the future? Stop dispossessing us. You know, the dispossession has already happened. So everything that happens now, think about how Aboriginal people might benefit from your action. You know, I'm in the food industry here and I've been growing a lot of these plants for seven or eight years and I've been having these conversations since 2012 and I have to repeat myself four, five, six times so that chefs and bakers and restaurateurs and permaculturalists understand that if you take our plants and make a career out of them, you've dispossessed us again. Mm. You know, use our plants, know our plants, love our plants, eat them. But how do Aboriginal people benefit? Because at the moment, of all the money that is spent on Aboriginal foods, 1% of it, 1% of it goes to Aboriginal people. Mm. That percentage is as disgraceful and is part of the statistics of the Closing the Gap campaign. It has to change. And it means we have to change the colonial mindset. I have often have a house full of people here because there's so little accommodation in this district that people who come to do films and do interviews and do research and that end up staying in the house. Nine times out of the ten, they're magnificent country. But eight times out of ten, they've got no idea mm. how their actions will impact Aboriginal people. I've never thought about it. I'm in that situation today. I'm bone-weary. From repeating myself, we had some filmmakers taking the sexiest footage they've ever taken of sustainable food production. They got sound and they got vision. They said, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It'll make their career. That's their first thought. Oh, geez, I'm going to sell this to Germany. I'm going to sell this to Britain or America. They don't even have a second thought. How is this going to benefit Aboriginal people? They think they are. They think, oh, this is going to be good for Aboriginal people. No, it's not. It's going to be good for their bank balance. Mm -hmm. It's going to be good for their career. What we need to do is continually think, how do Aboriginal people benefit from it? And everything we do, if we are fair income about making sure that Aboriginal people get some benefit from these things, it'll be health, education, jobs. And sometimes you start with the job. Mm. Aboriginal people having a job, the health and education will follow. We're really proud here at the moment because of our five part-time workers, two of them on the back of their wages 
are buying houses and they'll be the first owned house in their family. That's so incredible. if you want to improve the life of Aboriginal people, a job, the health and education will follow that. We need our kids to see our mums and dads get up at the morning at 7 o'clock and cut themselves a sandwich for lunch, put it in their bag, off to work, come home at 4.35 or whatever it is, with enough money in their pocket to make sure the milk is fresh, there's butter there, there's bread that it didn't come from coals, uh, all of those little things. Sorry, I see so much tragedy. I see so much poverty in our community. Yeah. It overwhelms me at times. It's modelled behaviour too, like you were saying, is kids seeing mum and dad get up, get ready, go to work and earn a living so that you can get a better education and have access to health and all that. That is key to living a good life. If if you're not seeing that behaviour modelled to you by your parents, well, then there's no incentive to do anything different or anything better sometimes. No, I, I believe strongly in the dignity of work and I talk to a lot of Aboriginal people and families and, you know, you hear a lot of talk about curry time and uh, sit down and, you know, families having been on the dole for four generations, that sort of thing. Mm. I say to them, look, your people harvested grain on a summer's day in February when it was 35 degrees. Um, it's hard work. It's constant work. When your great-great-grandmother was a baby, was probably uh, digging Murnong and Munyang and harvesting grains in a Kulamon so your great-great-grandmother could eat. Mm. Uh, it was hard work. Mm. We did have a lot of leisure time because we designed our society like that. Not that we were angels, um, not that we were perfect, but we had a real hot, red-hot go to look after mother and feed ourselves at the same time. And because we ate so diversely of the grasses and of the tubers, we drought-proofed ourselves because we had a diverse range of foods that we could turn to that we were looking after in any season so that if one crop wasn't as good one season, we could turn to another and it didn't matter. We were looking after the earth that she was going to provide. And there must have been, as we went through climate change, there must have been huge adaptations. But because of, we weren't using monocultures, we were able to swiftly change from one food source to another and supplement it with things we hadn't been eating or now that the weather was hotter, this plant was favoured over the other. You know, I think about those old people all the time and the adaptations they undertook to keep surviving. But our people were not lazy. Our people were not dumb. Our people were not hungry. I often think about the Canadian dentist came over to Australia. He was studying caries and he came to Australia very early on to look at tooth decay in Aboriginal people. So he went to some traditional communities and found no caries no tooth decay. Mm. The people were eating a diet which prevented tooth decay and it was lack of sugar, lack of wheat and flour were the things that he decided uh, were the two crucial things. The Pueblo uh, died young because they ate corn, which is an abrasive grain and possibly something to do with their grinding dishes as well. But that Canadian dentist looking at dental health found that in Australia there was no such thing as dental ill health. Bruce, I could talk to you for hours. This has been an absolutely fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your knowledge and the generosity of sharing it. I'm very grateful and I have no doubt that the people who've listened to this episode will have had their eyes opened 
and will walk out into the world with a view to care for Mother Earth, all her different spaces, for all people. Thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. And now I'm going for a swim. Oh, that sounds so good. I'm jealous. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast is brought to you by the Diggers Foundation. In order to bring these discussions into the open, we require ongoing funding and ask that you visit the Diggers website for more information on our purpose and how to make a donation towards preserving garden traditions, educating Australian gardeners and making a better world through gardening. Visit www.diggers.com.au.